I'm very happy to be here, very pleased to be here. And I think this is a very important uh, set of issues. Um, the papers which have been presented thus far at this conference have been more from, as was said, a social science background, so this is going to be a little bit different. Uh, my training is in Islamic studies. And um, I'm focusing on a contemporary jurist uh, named uh, Yusuf Sani'i. He's a very eminent uh, jurist of Iranian, uh, Iranian jurist, and he is a Shiite, a 12er Shiite. Um, and his rulings are quite unusual, and they directly impinge on the theme of this conference, which is legal reform affecting women. Um, he, um, if I'm not mistaken, you know, I mean, this information on his, you know, is, is from his website. He has a website, like many of the high-ranking ulama of uh, the Shia school do now. And so apparently he was, so he's probably about 75 years old. And if you're more interested in his biography, you can go and read it there. Uh, it's in many languages. It's up in English and Urdu and Persian and Arabic. Uh, but what's most relevant is, um, well, his age is relevant. Uh, to, to, to be influential in, in Shiite law, you, 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 know, you can't really be under 40. <laughs> You've got to be. So uh, you have to be blessed with longevity as well if you want to achieve anything. What? And a good memory. And a good memory. So, um, but what's uh, also important is that he um, studied with many of the eminent uh, ulama of his time, such as Ayatollah Burujerdi, but most importantly, perhaps, Ayatollah Khomeini, the founder of the um, so-called Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, and he's uh, even had a documentary film done about him by the Doha-based Al Jazeera um, called Online Ayatollah. And uh, there was an article, um, there was actually a series done on Iran in the London-based Arabic newspaper, Sharq al-Awsat. And they did a whole thing on him in which they dubbed him Mufti al-Nisa, or the Juris Consult of the Women. So he's distinguished himself by a number of, of, of peculiar rulings, peculiar against the backdrop of the broader sort of uh, a tradition of Islamic law. And among his noteworthy legal opinions that directly impinge on women are that a woman may become a marja al-taqlid, or what is called a model of imitation in, uh, in um, Shiite law. There's maybe 200 such individual, well, there's maybe 200 such individuals in the whole world it can't be a large number. I mean, I don't have any statistics. I mean, I want to talk about math. In the order of magnitude, it's going to be hundreds. It's not going to be hundreds of thousands of people who have reached to a level of independent judgment or ijtihad. And then, so let's say we have a few hundred of these people, and it's going to be a very small number who actually want to take the trouble of issuing rulings in, in substantial enough and in a codified form so that people can read them and, and follow him. So it's similar. It's, it's something like in Sunni Islam, uh, where, where you are either a, a Hanafi or a Shafi'i or a Maliki or a Hanbali, but those guys are dead, long, long dead. Um, and for the most part, the vast majority of, of Shiite scholars of the opinion, you must follow a living guide, a model of imitation, hence the term marja'at taqlid. So he has ruled that a woman can become um, such a figure. Um, he also says a woman may hold government office, thank you, a woman may serve as a judge, um, a woman and a man are equal in qisas, uh, and a woman and a man are also equal, as are a Muslim and non-Muslim, 
in Qisas as well, but also in Diya or the blood wit. Um, a woman inherits all of her husband's wealth if there are no other heirs. Um, a woman is not forbidden to leave her house even if she does not take her husband's permission. A woman need not take her husband's permission if she wishes to make a vow or nadr that concerns her person or her personal wealth. Should a woman forego her dowry seeking divorce, then the husband must grant it to her. A woman has the right of guardianship, wilaya, and this came up earlier, um, as well as custody over her children should her husband die rather than her father-in-law. So there's a bunch of these rulings. We certainly can't look at all of them. Um, we'll look at some of them, and probably only one or two. Uh, now that's a small number, but it will be, we'll look at them in sufficient detail, hopefully. Uh, so that one may get an idea, a very good idea, of his um, methodology and uh, mindset. Now, I will, uh, before I really begin, I'll simply state my conclusion about my conclusions about Ayatollah Sani'i uh, at the outset. And it's very simply stated, I think that in the jurisprudence of Ayatollah Sani'i, we have a kind of um, Reassertion or reaffirmation, if you like, of the notion of of uh, personhood, or if you like, um, the more modern term or notion of human being, rather than the categories of mere woman and mere man. Uh, now, I'll try to make this more clear in the examples which I give. But first, we must have a. Um, a five or six minute introduction to Usul al-Fiqh or Shi'i Usul al-Fiqh. There really needs to be an OUP book like that. So if you know anyone there, I would be happy to write it, you know. Usul al-Fiqh, a very brief introduction, a very short introduction, or they sell for like eight pounds or something, right? Um, Islamic jurisprudence um, is a very peculiar sort of jurisprudence. It's um, uh, somewhat more similar, I suppose, to, to uh, Orthodox Jewish law, halakha. Um, and there was much discussion and question and answer about codification at this conference. Um, there really, even in Shiite Islam, despite all appearances to the contrary, there is no final authority in Islam. There's no pope. Uh, there's no patri Orthodox uh, patriarch or whatever. There, there's nothing like that. Um, there was some attempt uh, by the British to manipulate the Muslims in Islamic history by trying to put forward various candidates as caliph. Um, and there has been also some attempt to sort of portray the rector of the uh, Azhar University as somehow speaking for Sunni Islam. But these are all rather nonsensical categories with very various political agendas behind them. There is no a sort of final ecclesiastical authority. Um, and so what you do have is you have learned individuals, the ulama, scholars, who uh, presumably have attained to a level of erudition whereby <clears throat> excuse me, they are able to derive the law, so to speak, directly from the sources. This level of erudition is called ijtihad. What are the sources of Islamic law? They are four. And it depends on which school we're talking about. So we're talking about Sunnis and Shiites. In Sunni Islam, it's very well known. It's Al-Kitab wa Sunnah al-Ijma' al-Qiyas, which basically means, you know, the Qur'an, the text of the Qur'an, 
Then they use the term sunnah. Sunnah is the normative practice of the Prophet Muhammad um, What is the sunnah? What was his normative practice? We don't know. We can't go and ask him. So what we do have is something else called hadith, which are uh, accounts of his statements or his actions or his tacit approvals. And these accounts were originally oral and they were compiled and there's a historical debate about how and when this all took place. And then you have ijma'a or the juridical consensus, the consensus of the jurists. And then you have qiyas, which is juridical analogy. Now this is for Sunni Islam. All of the four well-known Sunni schools of law, the uh, Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi, and Hanbali will adhere to this. Um, the one Sunni school of law which is not well known much anymore is the Zahidi school, which rejects Qiyas, which rejects any sort of notion of juridical analogy. In this, they, are, have, uh, they share this opinion with the Twelver Shiites. So the Twelver Shiites also reject Qiyas, and they have a different quadripartite division, which looks superficially the same, but it's not. <clears throat> I should also add that this quadripartite division, when I, when I speak of the Twelver Shiites, I mean the Usuli school. My question earlier, the earlier speaker was addressing that. There's a division also among the Twelver Shiites between the Usulis and the Akhbaris. The Akhbaris are pretty much finished. A very, very small number of adherents, except for in Bahrain, the, main, the notable exception. They still sort of survive there. So for the Twelver uh, Usulis, you have, again, the Quran, then you have the Sunnah. But here, the sunnah is not just the normative practice of the Prophet Muhammad, but it also includes the so-called infallibles, what are termed the infallibles, al-ma'sumun or al-ma'sumin. And there are actually 14 persons. So there's the Prophet Muhammad, his daughter Fatima, al-Zahra, and the 12 uh, imams. And who are they? Well, that's Ali, Hassan, Hussein, and so forth. I could recite all the names for you, but we don't need to do that. So, um, uh, what's important to realize is that the Imams are descendants of the Prophet Muhammad through the union of Ali and Fatima. Fatima is the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad. Ali is his cousin and his uh, son-in-law. Um, and so then the 12 Imams are, the, the, Ali is the first Imam and then the line of the Imams goes through his eldest son Hassan, then it goes to his younger son Hussein, and then the line of Imams perpetuates from Hussein. So the Sunnah for the Twelver Shiites includes the statements, actions, and tacit approvals of all of these individuals. And so the body of Sunnah is much larger for the Shiite jurist. And so the, the Hadiths are really, really huge. The corpus of Hadiths is vast, shall we say. Uh, to give you an idea, one of the, the largest compendiums of Shiite Hadith literature is called Biharul Anwar. And in the most uh, widespread, widely used edition today, it is 110 volumes. Now, each volume is about that thick. You know, it's maybe, maybe you know, it would be like 1.7, 1.8, 1.9 centimeters thick. But then you have 110 of them. And I have it. It takes up a lot of space. So that's a lot of hadiths. For this reason, the Shiite jurist is actually somewhat more limited in terms of their room for maneuver than the Sunni jurist because they just have a lot more sources of law, and in many cases, in many, many, many instances, things are spelled out in great detail. Nowhere in Sunni Islam will you find a complete description of how the five prayers are supposed to be performed. You kind of have to dig around. You won't find it in a single hadith. You have to piece it together. In 12 or Shiite hadith, you have the full description. 
So, so the Shiite jurist has somewhat less room for maneuver. Um, and the Sunni uh, jurist had less text, which is why they had to resort to Qiyas. So the third principle then for the 12 Shiites is also juridical consensus. But here it's not the same. It looks the same. In other words, something like the Western notion of legal precedent. No, it's not like that at all. You have to realize that for the 12 Shiites, the Prophet Muhammad, like all the Prophets and the Imams, are all completely and totally infallible. They don't make any mistakes. So it is the job of the jurist to try to discover what the law is, preferably by finding explicit statements in the Quran or the Hadith. And then if not, then he has to be careful. He doesn't have a little room for maneuver. They don't allow Qiyas. So what do you do? How do you basically justify the consensus of a bunch of jurists? You have to understand that the 12th Imam is considered to be still alive by the 12 Shiites. It would make him about 1,200 years old. But he is in occultation. And so the principle of ijma or consensus is considered a means for discovering the opinion of the 12th Imam. Because if you're referring to a previous generation of jurists, then you must conclude that somehow the opinion of the 12th Imam is there as well. And so ijma is seen as a means of discovering uh, the view of uh, the 12th Imam. Then you have the fourth principle, which is aql, or uh, the, uh, the um, judgments of pure and practical reason, to use modern philosophical terminology. And this is very important for Sanhi because he does this a lot. Um, so that's uh, Shiite Usul al-Fiqh. There, in addition, uh, which was developed much later in the 19th century, if I'm not mistaken, by Sheikh Murtada al-Ansari, another set of principles called al-Usul al-Amaliya, uh, which we cannot go into, but just for the sake of completeness, we, we mentioned them. Uh, if anyone is interested in all of these things in more detail, you should read the papers and of Hussein Mudarisi. That's pretty much all that's out there. Uh, and he has a book called um, Shi Law, a Biobibliographical Study, Ithaca Press, 1986. Uh, at any rate. So what does this mean for Yusuf Sani? Well, let's look at some examples. How am I doing on time? I have another sort of um, 10 minutes. Oh my god. All right. Um, yeah, uh, if we look at the, his ruling on bloodwit, where he says basically the, the, the bloodwit of a man and woman is equal. Uh, so this is in the case of, for example, an accidental death. You, you know, you're out hunting, you shoot some arrows, and you end up killing someone unintentionally, for example. What do you do? Well, there's really no uh, serious debate on whether there is a bloodwit or not. There is. Um, but Sanri says that the blood wit is equal. Now, why does he say this? Uh, which, by the way, is 100 camels or its equivalent. <laughs> 100 camels or 200 cows or 1,000 gold dinars. Um, I think it's 10,000 silver dirhams. Um, so Sanri rules that there is no disparity at all in the amount of the blood wit between a man or a woman and indeed between a Muslim or a non-Muslim. He argues that you know, there's only a single verse in the Qur'an that even mentions diya, which is um, the fourth surah of the Qur'an, Surah An-Nisa, the one named for women. And the verse is 92, if you want to go under it, it's kind of long. But what it does, it merely establishes the principle 
that dia is due in cases where one is killed uh, or someone is killed by mistake. It does not specify the amount of the dia, whether in camels or what have you, in any way what to say of establishing differing amounts for men and women, Muslim and non-Muslim. Moreover, the Qur'an explicitly establishes the sanctity of uh, all human life. Uh, there's a famous uh, verse uh, which alludes to the original, if you like, primordial murder of Cain by Abel, and it states that on account of this heinous deed, uh, it was decreed to the children of Israel, Banu Israel, that uh, any who take a life, and the word that's used in Arabic is nafs. So any who takes a life, it is as though he killed all humankind. An-nasu jami'a. Uh, while um, if anyone saved a life, it is as though he uh, saved all humankind. Moreover, the Qur'an also states, um, also interestingly enough in Surah An-Nisa, it's the fourth surah of the Qur'an, first verse. Um, أَيُّهَا النَّاسِ اتَّقُوا رَبَّكُمَ الَّتِي خَلَقَكُمْ مِنْ نَفْسٍ وَاحِدَةٍ وَخَلَقَ مِنْهَا زَوْجَهَا وَبَثَّ مِنْهُمَا رِجَالًا كَثِيرًا وَنِسَاءً O humankind, be mindful of your Lord who created you from a single soul مِنْ نَفْسٍ وَاحِدَةٍ Again, the word is nafs in Arabic. And from it created its mate, the term is zawj in Arabic. And from them twain, this is pickthall, hath spread abroad a multitude of men and women. And it's there that you get the gender differentiation. Despite these clear Quranic passages uh, of uh, the equal sanctity of all human life, male and female, believer and infidel, she jurisprudence quantifies the dia of a woman to be half that of a man. How did this happen? Well, the support for this view is established not on the basis of the Qur'an. Remember, there's only one verse in the Qur'an that explicitly mentions the blood wit, and it's really just establishing the principle of blood wit, not the amounts. So where does it come from? Remember Shiite jurisprudence. Well, now you've got to go to the hadith. So there's a bunch of hadiths on this. If you're wondering, there are exactly 14. And those 14 hadiths are found in the most important legal compendium of hadiths by, compiled by Al-Hurra Al-Amili, Safavid period, is called Wasa'il Shia. If you need the references, I can get them for you. But uh, suffice it to say that there are 14 hadiths. And out of those, Sani'i argues, and I forgot to mention my source, Sani'i has published uh, a series called Silsilat al-Fiqh al-Ma'asr. And it's, my guess is he probably wrote it originally in Persian, and, if, and I've downloaded everything from the website. But on the website, he's only got those books up in Arabic. Alternatively, he could have written them in Arabic. I, I really don't know for sure. He wrote it in Arabic. He did. Because sometimes you can't tell. Uh, because there is a, um, a kind of Shiite seminary in Arabic, which isn't like modern Arabic. I actually think it's better than modern Arabic. But then you have to know the terms and so forth. And, the, and so you can't always tell. Um, at any rate, uh, in Silsilat al-Fiqh al-Ma'asr, he has a, a monograph of about 100 pages called Musawat Bain al-Rajul wal-Mar'a wal-Muslim wal-Kafir fiddiyya The equality of men and women and Muslims and non-Muslims in bloodwit. So this is a whole series. 
And it's interesting because it's the term that's used is the series on fiqh. The word is fiqhun in Arabic, which is different from the term sharia. Fiqh really indicates understanding, and so there is an element of interpretation. And Sanahi, in this, in this monograph and in others, and there's, there's about 10 of them in this series, the, the, at least that I found on the web. Um, all 10 of them are not there. There's some discrepancy in the numbering, but at, at any rate, you can look in the website. And so it's interesting that he, he uses this, um, uh, in, in these monographs, he talks about how there is law, there is sharia, and then there's the interpretation of jurists. Um, so with reference to this question, he says that these hadiths, out of these 14 hadiths, there's actually only two which can be construed uh, as, in, as, as putting forward a kind of um, uh, disparity in the amounts. And he rejects those on linguistic and other grounds. So in one of them, the term rajul is used. Rajul. And uh, actually the, the narrator says that he asked one of the imams about the diya of a rajul. And then the imam answered. And Sanai says, well, the term rajul also in Arabic can be used in a gender neutral sense. And so he clearly favors it going that way. But he also says that, well, we don't, you know, this is the phrasing of the person who asked the question. Had he phrased it differently, maybe the Imam would have given a different answer. And um, other hadiths he rejects on what, what, what one always does in hadith debates is um, if you're not familiar with this, hadiths are evaluated according in terms of authenticity, usually by the narrators. And so he'll find something wrong with one of the narrators and say, well, this narrator, narrator is weak or this narrator is not reliable, or this person is unknown. These are the sorts of things that are done. And so he basically gets rid of those. But for Sanahi, the ultimate principles are these principles which are found in the Qur'an. In his sort of understanding of usul al-fiqh, or if you like, his methodology, he uh, favors um, or gives pride of place or priority, shall we say, to the Qur'anic values of justice and equality, which are clearly stated in verses which, which some of which we cite and which he also cites, as well as in many hadiths of the imams, which are of undisputed, uh, impeccable, if you like, uh, uh, um, uh, authenticity. Um, so we don't, uh, it would have been nice if we had time to go through all of those hadiths, but we don't. Hmm? Yeah. Um, there is another example, which we won't be able to go into, but this has, uh, we mentioned that um, if you have the situation in inheritance where the sole heir is the wife, uh, then he rules that she should get the entirety of the estate of the deceased husband, as opposed to one quarter. And again, he goes through the same sort of uh, method. Saying, uh, same sort of arguments, that uh, to go otherwise is against the notion of justice and against the notion of equality and so forth, which is established in the Qur'an. Mind you, he's not appealing to the UN Charter on Human Rights. He's very much within the Shiite tradition and trying to work within the uh, tradition of usul al-fiqh. Um, uh, he also, since he is a Shiite, and this comes out in a book of sort of essays of his. It's not a very legal sort of book. It's called uh, Lubabul, uh, what's it called? 
um, well, uh, some essays which he wrote. And he talks about the importance for Shiite Muslims of Fatima, the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad, and how she is sort of the ideal sort of uh, model for Islamic women and womanhood and so forth. And this may be one reason he has sort of a this sort of an attitude or more kind of respectful, I don't know if that's the right turn of phrase, um, with respect to the questions of, uh, that relate to women. But there's another uh, dimension. He's very clearly, like, as we find in the Shiite school, um, but he argues, more, I think, much more vigorously for the notion that there has to be a rationale behind all divinely instituted laws. What is in, what's called in, in, in Shiite usul al-fiqh, or in these discussions of, of usul al-deen, al-husn wa al-qubh al-aqliyan. That is to say, the notion of a kind of literal translation of rational good or evil. And to put it in a more idiomatic English, not translating but interpreting, in other words, the ethical valuation of acts must have a basis in reason. Uh, and divine legislation is not uh, whimsical. Uh, as in physics, so also in, 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 <laughs> in law, you know, to borrow a phrase from Einstein, God does not play dice with the universe. Um, so if God has said in the Quran that we should not consume uh, intoxicating alcoholic drinks, then there is a reason for this. There's a rationale behind it, whether we know it or not. Um, the Sunni Ash'ari school took the opinion that, well, no, there isn't. We, there is no rationale behind these things. Things are good or bad simply because God said so. And if he said, well, don't drink lemon juice, then we wouldn't be drinking lemon juice today simply because he said it. Um, so Asani also appeals, therefore, to reason in uh, his uh, arguments. All right. Why? How and why? The how and why of Sanahi's uh, rulings. I mean, how did we how did we get to this situation? I mean, if things are so simple and clear in the Quran, uh, as he would argue, how did we get this way? Now, this is my opinion. Sanahi doesn't say anything about this. Um, I think that something funny or something odd happened in Islamic history. It's hard to say exactly when, but it has been called the uh, legalitarian turn or the legalitarian ascendancy by um, someone in Christian Jambe in, in a book he wrote called The Act of Being, which is a book on Islamic philosophy on Mullah Sadra. But it's, it's this point in Islamic history where ilm or knowledge and the ulama, therefore, the men of knowledge or the women of knowledge as well, the people of knowledge, the scholars, if you like, become identified completely with legal knowledge and legal scholarship as opposed to uh, other ways of knowing, other scholar disciplines such as philosophy, falsafa. And I think that had a uh, very profound and lasting and in some ways detrimental effect on Islamic intellectual history and the effects of which we uh, live with to this day. Now, in terms of implications, I mean, you know, is Sana'i going to be influential in terms of legal reform in the MENA region? I doubt it. One, because he's a Shiite jurist. The Shiites are very much marginalized in the Muslim world uh, anyway. Uh, and um, the other thing is that uh, a lot of the other Shiite jurists are not really taking him seriously. 
and uh, if you talk to some uh, Shiite ulama, they sort of smile, Sahanehi, you know, as though he's some kind of a laughing stock or something. But they can't really say what say that because he studied with eminent people. Uh, he was appointed to the Council of um, Guardians, was it? Council of Experts after the revolution. He even served as a prosecutor. He, you know, he's not just some guy walking around that you can dismiss. Um, but there is a kind of authority of antiquity. You know, the older an opinion is, the harder it is usually to to question it and challenge it. And if Islamic intellectual history or legal history tells us anything, these kind of views will only be successful in the long term if if he is able to educate enough students who are then in turn able to influence more and so and this is how things happen but whether it will happen or not is very hard to say i mean you cannot really predict these kind of sociological forces it's easier to predict a, an earthquake or a tsunami um, so we'll have to wait but we'll probably all be long gone